But uh, we've been in a series in the Ten Commandments, and um, that may seem strange to some because you're, you've, you may have heard that kind of the Old Testament is like kind of not so important anymore, and really we focus on the New Testament. Well, that would have been news to Jesus, who, who quoted the Old Testament literally from the cross. He believed in it so much. Um, so the t- here, here's where people trip up, though. The Ten Commandments are not ten things you do to prove to God that you belong in the kingdom. Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sin and give us eternal life, and, and that's it. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. Also, the Ten Commandments are not t- ten things that you do, and if you perform these things well enough, then your life is going to go nice and smooth by the hand of God. That's not what they are. Have you ever heard someone say, be a good person? That's all over the place. So I've heard people say, you know, really all of the ethics of the Bible comes down to two things. Love God, love others. All right? That sounds good. It's simple. We like simple. Build a wall. People like simple, right? <laughs> that sells. But what does that mean? How do you do it? How do you love God and love others? How do you be a good person? Well, the Ten Commandments are God's guidance on how to live a life of love. The very heart of God's law is love. And so when we are looking at the Ten Commandments, we're answering the question, what does it mean to love God and love others in concrete terms? Making sense? All right, let's pray before we begin. Father God, I pray that you would be with us, that we would lay hold of your word, and in the places where it's difficult to accept, you would give us the grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an old uh, movie, it's not very good. Um, it's called The Stepford Wives. It was, a, it was a novel before it was a movie. Everybody kind of familiar with this? I'm only ruining it for a few people. It's not that good. I'm going to ruin it for you. But what it's about is this couple from New York. I believe it was Nicole Kidman, Matthew Broderick. Any, anybody check me on that? Yes, thank you, Elizabeth. And they move from uh, New York City to the idyllic town of Stepford, Connecticut. And, and Stepford, Connecticut is perfect in a creepy way right? Like everything's perfectly manicured. It's almost like being at Disneyland. You know, the the sprinklers are in perfect sync with the gardening and the this and that, and and you get it. And perhaps the most creepily perfect, and I put that in scare quotes, uh, thing about Stepford, Connecticut are the wives of the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut. These women seem to be interested in nothing but going to aerobics class, wearing their best dress at all times and their makeup, uh, no matter what, uh, cooking cleaning, and most of all, agreeing with whatever their husbands do and say and kind of catering to their needs at all times. And this seems incredibly creepy to, uh, to, the, the, to Nicole Kidman's character, and so she starts looking into it. And she starts researching who these women were before they moved to Stepford, Connecticut, and it turns out they were CEOs, they were judges, they were entrepreneurs, they were formidable women, and it doesn't really fit at all with the, the people that she's experiencing in Stepford, Connecticut. What had happened is that the, the men, of, the, the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, didn't like the fact that their wives were always disagreeing with them. That they, that they were their own person, that they had a mind of their own. And so these guys who were captains of industry, they were Disney executives, they were, you know, uh, aerospace engineers and such, they came up with they, what they called the Female Improvement Program, which was inserting a microchip 
into their wives' brain so that they could control them and they would do whatever they wanted. If someone can't contradict you, if someone agrees with you at all times, are you in relationship with them? Were the men of Stepford, Connecticut, I ruined the movie for you. It, you don't even need to see it now. I, I, that was probably better listening to me. Um, <laughs> but it, it, are those guys in real relationship with their wives? Like what they think is a perfect relationship, is that a relationship at all? No, someone's got to be able to be different from you, to contradict you, to say things that disagree with you, correct? Well, we actually put God through the deity improvement program. We make a Stepford wife out of God because I've seen it time and time again when we come across something in God's word that rubs us the wrong way or we think God comes off bad in there, people sound, start saying things like this. Well, that's not the God I know. Or, you know what? I looked in my heart and the God in my heart doesn't match this God at all and so I'm going to ignore that. Anything God does or says that contradicts what we think God should be, we give him the deity improvement program and turn God into a Stepford God. No, nope, God isn't like that. God isn't angry at sin. Can't be. You know why? Because I'm not. I've seen people bail on a perfectly good spouse, like this spouse had not committed any thing of any kind, but they're leaving, and this person's committed to following Christ, and and I'll say, well, what, what about, like, hey, you, you vowed before God, and, right, like, this is what the Scripture requires. And they, they say, I've, I've, this is like five or six cases I've seen this. They say, well, I think God wants me to be happy. Where did they get that in God's Word? The answer is nowhere. They looked in their heart, and their Stepford God says, no, it's okay. If we turn God into a Stepford God, if God is unable to contradict us, are we in real relationship? That's what the second commandment is mainly concerned with. It's making a false version of the true God. We're going to take a look at the text together, um, and, and then we're going to, to apply it the way we've been doing it, with the dartboard. You'll see the dartboard, people who are new to it. All right, let's look at the text together. Look with me at Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, what's happening there is, is in the ancient world, they, they were very fond of making statues and images of gods. And this is not a prohibition on worshiping other gods. That was the first commandment. Remember, no other gods. This is a prohibition on making a false version of the true God. Don't make an idol of Yahweh. Don't carve anything to represent God. And, and going on in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, we don't like that word jealous, and I think it's a poor choice of word. A better translation of the Hebrew word might be passionately committed. Okay, In the same way you're passionately, a parent might be passionately committed to their children, or a, a rock band might be passionately committed to rocking out. Um, 
Right? That's the idea of jealous God. He's a God who's passionately committed. And he, he's, not, he's not a two-timer. Okay? He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that could be thousands of generations, of those who love me and keep my commandments. The basic idea there being on judgment, I'm a three or a four, and on faithfulness, I'm a 1,000. Okay, that's the idea there. And so, why is God concerned with us? How is making an idol making a false version of the true God? Well, an idol, you would make like, for instance, the Philistines, they, they worshipped a sea god named Dagon. And Dagon was represented as having a fish head and fish hands and kind of like Aquaman or something like that. And, and what an idol would do is make that god local and physical. Local, physical. He's the god of the Philistines. Right? It's, it's Athena is the god of wisdom and located in Athens is the patron deity. Right? That, that's, that's the idea behind an idol. The problem with that is, is God God over the sea? Yes, but also the sky, also the rivers, also the land, also us, also fertility and crops and, and everything else. He's the God of all creation. Any attempt to localize God is to misrepresent him. And also, we know that God is not physical. So to represent God in a physical way is to misrepresent God. It's to make a false version of the true God. Um, you know, what's interesting, this might be too much, but I, I promise it, it explains a couple things. There's a event in the book of First Kings, and um, this, there's this guy who's king of the north uh, named Jeroboam, and he sets up a whole new temple, a whole new priesthood of his own making, and he makes two big golden bulls, and he presents these bulls as God, as the one true God. He says, come on, Israel, worship Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want to read you. Actually, I'll put the, the verse up, 1 Kings 14, 9. This is what God says to him. He says, you have done evil above all who were before you, you and you have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. But wait. He was making these images not of Dagon or Baal or any of those things, but of the one true God. But making an image of God is making a misrepresentation. It's a false version. It's the same as worshiping another God. Making sense? Why is this? Why does God want us to, uh, to not make a false version of him? It's because God wants us to know him. That's what that word jealous is all about. He's passionately committed. He wants us to truly know him. And so we are going to take this don't make a graven image and we're going to think about it like a dartboard like we have with all the Ten Commandments. I didn't put the dartboard in, did I? Let's see how wizard you are at getting, you could all imagine a dartboard. I'm not going to put that kind of pressure on my son. Um, so I, I first of all have to recognize my, uh, my friend and mentor, Bill Connors, for coming up with this analogy. But the Ten Commandments are like a dartboard, okay? Uh, those of us who don't play darts but have thrown darts, you aim for the bullseye. That's where you're trying to hit, and you never hit it. And if you do, you, you throw a party. If you get on the board, you're still pretty happy with that. But if you hit the wall, you're like, that's out of bounds, okay? 
The Ten Commandments, for instance, making a graven image, tells us where the wall is. If, if we just avoid making an image, it doesn't mean we've kept the commandment to the full extent of the bullseye, which is love. Okay? So we're going to go through it as, what does it mean to break it? What does it mean to keep it? What does it mean to fulfill it in love? So breaking it is making a false version of the true God. It's to make a false version of the true God. And here's, that's what, here's why that is so deadly. Let's pretend that my wife, Sharon, had a picture of David Hasselhoff, like this one. There we go. She carries this picture around, which why wouldn't you? And she said, this is my husband, Matt Morjinski. And they say, people say, is that, a, is that a picture of your husband, Matt Morjinski? No, this picture is my husband, Matt Morjinski. And she takes it to dinner parties and goes camping with it, right? She's building relationship with this picture of David Hasselhoff, calling it Matt Morjinski. Okay, question. Is she building relationship with me? Is her devotion poured out to this false version of me? Devotion to me? No, not at all, right? That is what it is to make a false version of the true God. It's to misplace our worship. It's to misplace and misdirect our commitment and devotion to something that isn't God at all. We could lose David now. Thank you, Abe. And, and so what does that look like? Because very few of us, I think, are, are going to the metal shop and making a representation of some, some kind of, of God, um, although I would say white Jesus is a contender. Um, so it, it, it looks like, as Mark Twain once said, God created man in his image, and then man returned the favor. Anytime that we kind of look in ourselves, we do this, like, how do we know God? Well, it's this intuitive, it's just this gut thing. When someone tells me about the God in their heart, what they're actually telling me about is themselves. Have you ever noticed this? Right, so before the election, there was all these prophets uh, on the interwebs and stuff like that saying, God want, you know, God's going to bring Trump back to office. And... Then Trump didn't come back to office, and then they were saying, God is so angry that America didn't bring Trump back to office. And it's like, wait a second. I also noticed you're angry that Trump didn't come back to office. Could it be that you're projecting yourself onto God, right? That you're remaking God in your own image, that you're making a false version of the true God? I heard one person on the radio say, Jesus was certainly a socialist. Okay debatable, but I also notice that you're a socialist, and you may just be projecting yourself onto God. I mean, this was the, the thinking of the colonialists who were going around and civilizing people. They were like, hmm, you know, Western European culture really is the best, and these savages clearly don't have it together. Oh, God, do you want, yes, God wants us to go and enforce our culture on them and civilize them. Right? It's like, oh, I also noticed that's what you wanted to do anyway. It's very interesting that God happens to agree with you. Right? We, guys, when we, I am all for experiencing God in an intuitive way. Okay? Don't hear me say, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the impulses we have towards God are wrong. I want you to encourage those impulses. Pour water on them if they're a plant, not if they're a flame. Okay? Like, get, make them bigger. Go for it. But it must be guided by God's word. Okay? 
beware the language. I look in my heart and God says this. If you're not about to quote scripture, beware of making a God in your own image, making a false version of the true God. If you say, the God I know would never, unless you're quoting scripture or saying something backed up from God's own self-disclosure, beware of making a false version of the true God. Why? Because God wants us to truly know him. He doesn't want us to direct our love and devotion and relational energy towards the David Hasselhoff picture, but towards the true God. He wants us to truly know him. So that's where the wall is. What does it look, what should we do instead? Well, to keep the second commandment is to accept God's revelation. What do we mean by that? What is God's revelation? Well, think of it like this. Now, Samantha isn't shy, so I could talk about her. Let's say I said, hey, to someone who had never met her, hey, do you know Samantha Coho? And then someone's like, yeah, Samantha Coho, okay. She loves baseball, she loves camping, and sweet and sour chicken. It's like, well, how do you, all of those things are false, I'm guessing. Oh, one out of three ain't bad. But, you know, someone just kind of looks in their heart and says, this is what Samantha Coho's like. That wouldn't be very honoring to her, would it? To, that, to, I'm going to tell Samantha who she is. Not a good idea. She's been exercising and can, you know. Um, so we have to ask, well, how, does, how would you know her? It's by being in relationship and her telling you who she is, right? What does she do? What does she say? What does she like to be around? And that's what we believe God has done in two ways, two main ways. One is called general revelation, God telling us who he is through creation. And so the work of the scientist is actually crucial for helping us to understand who God is. The more we know about the workings of creation, the more we know about the creator in the same way you might learn more and more about the character of Vincent van Gogh through uh, studying the paintings or Georgia O'Keeffe and you'd find out they really like blue and they're good at painting. But you don't know exactly who they are, do you? Like you're, you're, you look at, you study the paintings of Georgia O'Keeffe, you, you don't know all that much about her. You get some idea. She exists, she paints cow skulls and that sort of thing. <laughs> and so there has to be something more specific. This is called special or specific revelation, and that is the Old and New Testament, God's word. God recording his deeds, his words, sending prophets, and so forth. And so when we say, hey, we want to know who God is, God's own self-disclosure is the scripture. And so accepting who God has revealed to be in creation and through the scripture is to begin to keep the second commandment. And by the way, the most outstanding example of this is the life of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God become a human being who walked around, lived in relationship, went to the cross, rose again from the dead, and so forth. And so if we want to know, because it, it can be hard, right? Like in the Old Testament, God shows up, but a lot of the time his hand is hidden, isn't it? Right? We can know about God indirectly. The most direct revelation of the character of God is Jesus, of course. And so to keep the second commandment 
is to accept God's revelation through creation, scripture, and especially the life of Jesus. Now, there is a, a current movement out there, um, mainly existing in blogs and podcasts, uh, called deconstructing the faith. And some of you guys might, have been, might, might be familiar with some of this. Now, the, the, the basic premise is good. It's saying that America, the American version of Christianity is constructed by white, uh, you know, middle-class culture of the West. And, and we need to deconstruct that and get back to the authentic faith. So far, I'm totally on board. I agree. But then what they want to do is overturn 4,400 years of thinking, and know, thinking about and knowing God. And what's worse is the tools that they use are tools that come from the modern West, right? The German critical Bible scholarship of the 19th century and, you know, the works of guys like uh, Michel Foucault and, and Jacques Derrida, who people pretend to understand, uh, to deconstruct. That's a, those are French literary theorists. And they use these tools to deconstruct the Christian faith, right? Even not just the recent Western American stuff, but the ancient stuff. You know what the ancient stuff was? The, the first four or five centuries of the, of the Christian faith, you know who the main theologians were who were reflecting on the Bible? They were African and Asian. And so it's a, a curious thing to overturn the Bible itself, written by ancient, you know, Near Eastern folk, and the theologians from Africa and Asia using German... Western, French, and modern hipster man bun kind of stuff to overturn all that and think we're going to get back to the essence of the Christian faith, right? It seems like a worse, it seems like that solution is worse than the problem. You know what the actual solution is to getting back to the heart? It's to accept God's revelation and to do so in community, in real community, right? Not just my pals who think like me went to school where I went to school, but for modern people to listen to ancient people, for Western people to listen to African people, and for conservative people to listen to liberals, and liberals conservatives, can you stand it? Right? We don't see our own blind spots, we see each other's blind spots, so we need to receive God's revelation in actual community, and this is key, keeping the second commandment means accepting the parts that we do not like. It especially means that. Anytime, now, I want to make sure that we're also rightly understanding the text before we say, well, I guess this in Leviticus, you know, these, these prophets who false, falsely prophesied that Trump was going to be president were false prophets. We have to go kill them, right? Like, it does say that in the Old Testament, but we don't have to do it. That would be a text wrongly understood, <laughs> okay? So, it, uh, staying with the dartboard analogy, to break it is to make a false version of the true God. To keep it is to accept God's revelation. God says, I am this, I am it, right? And you say, okay, I, that's, that's what God is, not what I say he is. And lastly, the bullseye is to know and love God as he truly is. To know and love God as he truly is. And not one of us are ever going to be able to do that not even in glory. You know why? Because God is infinite and we'll always be finite. Even when we're healed and whole, we're always going to be much less than God, unable to comprehend him fully. But that doesn't mean we don't aim for the bullseye. 
we want to grow in our knowledge and love of God throughout our lives and in the next one. Okay? It's one way that we can do this in just our, our daily walk is to pay attention when you're reading your Bible, right? When you come across things that rub you the wrong way, but take note. I- admit, I don't like that. I disagree with that. I think the scriptures are wrong. <laughs> okay, take note. And then work towards accepting and a deeper understanding. And eventually what's going to happen is the thing that you simply accepted that was hard to accept will become a reason to love. Uh, it's like, um, you know, for those of you who have gotten married, you know that before you're married, it's kind of a best foot forward thing, no matter how well you think you know someone. But then you get married and move in together, and you find out what's really going on, don't you? Like, for instance, you know, uh, Sharon and I, we knew each other well before we got married, but I started to find around the house after we got married these cups, just kind of coffee cups. They would be stowed on a bookshelf or, uh, you know, behind some things on a, on a dresser, and I'd, I'd be cleaning, I'd pick it up, and it had clearly been there a long time. There was no, she would drink like two-thirds of the tea and then leave it, and it would sprout. It would have like a whole economy and, and language and culture by the time I got to it, and I would, I would be like losing it. I'd be like, dude, could you stop leaving these things around? And then after a while, I had to come to accept that being married to Sharon was living with these things. And then eventually I came up with a name for them, Sharon's. I, I decided these were her children and, you know, and it became like a joke. I, we'd joke about, oh, I found one, this one has your eyes, you know, isn't that cute? And so something that started as something I could not accept became something I accepted and lived with. And then it became, I, I laugh to think about it now, right? Like, it's, it's one of those little things about her I only know, and now you know. <laughs> and I asked her to share that, by the way. We don't, I don't play that game. Um, and, and now it's a reason to love her more, right? As, as, the, my, my, as, as my knowing her has, relationship has gone deeper with her. And this is the same with our relationship with God. I'll give you an example. Um, and this may open up a can of worms for people, but, uh, you know, the... the the first time I, you know, I became a Christian when I was 15, and I was always taught, like, you know, it's all about your free will and freely choosing, and then someone started to show me some of the verses in the Bible that say, like, God chooses his people, and at first I was like, man, that's not true, that's nonsense. I literally said the words, that's not the Jesus I know, right? And then I started doing research on it and found out, okay, this, this is just all over the scriptures, like, I can't, I can't get away from this. I have to accept it, but I didn't like it. And then after years and years of not liking it, but reflecting on it and, and asking God, how, how is this beautiful? I don't get it. I started to see, okay, this doesn't mean that people can't be saved. It means God can save anyone. It means that, that, that the person who's too mentally incapacitated to respond to the gospel, God can save. The person who never hears on wherever, uh, you know, someplace where there's, like, the gospel isn't shared, like Vermont or New York, something like that. <laughs> no, I grew up in Long Island. I had never met a Christian until we moved to California. I had never heard the gospel. You know, that, that person can be saved. 
right? And I started to say, oh, that, that's actually a beautiful and comforting thing. Okay, I saw the beauty in it, but after years of wrestling through it, I'm not saying that y'all are going to start reading the Bible and, and saying, yay, I really like how God looks here. And some of it's hard to accept. And if, and if it's not for you, I, I guess you're not reading all of it. <laughs> you know, that's normal. It's okay. But if we're going to keep the second commandment and not remake a false version of the true God in our own image, we need to not only avoid doing that, but to accept revelation and then to work, as, work towards knowing and loving God as he truly is because God wants us to truly know him. And that in and of itself, so when we read the second commandment, a lot of time it's like, it just sounds like a don't, you know? But see what it really is? It's God wanting us to not accept a counterfeit. He wants us to know him. There was a... Um, a guy named Joel Siegel. He was the movie critic for uh, Good Morning America. Anybody remember Joel Siegel? So, interesting story when I heard about this. I was, I was pretty moved by it. He found out at the age of 57, he found out on the same day that his wife was pregnant with their first child. He hadn't had a child before. And that he had terminal cancer. And so he started working on a book called Letters to Dylan. And he, what was clear when you read this book uh, is that he was trying to put himself in a book because he knew, and he, he died when his son was three years old, he knew he was not going to be around for his son's life. And he wanted his son to know him. And so, so when you, I mean, just the table of contents of this thing, the character of the man comes through. He tells the story of his life, what happened with his first, life, or his first wife how he became a movie critic, how he uh, brought Dr. King to speak at UCLA and got to meet him, and how he became a joke writer for Bobby Kennedy. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, like, he was a really funny guy, and so his humor comes through, and, and like, uh, you know, he has, um, he has a chapter, and you should read it, because I can't repeat them. It's the history of the Jews and four jokes. And, uh, and then a glossary of Yiddish. It's amazing. He has a... <laughs> He has a chapter on sex. He, the, the, the entire chapter is, go ask your mother. <laughs> but he's trying to guide his son. He's giving him career advice and, and, and teaching him about love. Right? And, and think of, like, as a father, I could definitely connect. And it's Father's Day. I, this was unintentionally Father's Day themed, guys. But I wanted my, he wanted his son to know him. Right? We don't serve a God who is just trying to lay on us rules for rules' sake. He wants us to not make a false version of him, to accept his revelation, and because he wants us to truly know him. Please pray with me.